us this morning, we will be continuing our way in the Gospel of John, and we will be finishing out the fourth uh, chapter this morning. Most recently, um, we've seen Jesus in Samaria there with his ministry, first to the Samaritan woman, and, and then to the, the rest of the community. Um, as many came to believe in him, it was a very successful time, it seems, of Jesus' ministry. Now Jesus is continuing and is on, on his way where he was going to begin with, uh, to Galilee, and that's where our passage is going to pick up this morning, starting in vor- verse 43. Let's read. After the two days, he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he made the water to wine, and at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. And when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went down to him, and he asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all of his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Let's pray, O oh, Father. We thank you for your word this morning, us, this morning before us. O oh, Father, we pray, would you help us to believe it? Would you help us to believe the truth of it? Would you help us to respond in faith to you? We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you've ever heard the stories of how me and my wife met, and I may have shared it before, but we have very two different tellings. In her telling, um, we were at some sort of party at seminary at the beginning of the year when she had just come as a, as a new student, and uh, she saw me across the room, and of course, I took her breath away. She knew it was love at first sight, at least that's what I like to think. Um, regardless, it was at that uh, time that a mutual friend supposedly um, introduced us to one another, being that we were both from Georgia um, in seminary in Orlando, and um, Adrian evidently, now I, I don't know if this is true because I don't remember it, but um, she says, oh, you know, she comes, you know, oh, you're from Georgia too, and my response was some sort of grunt or something some sort of disinterest for the whole conversation. Now, I could blame it on the fact that, you know, I'd just gotten back from Colorado all summer and I was tired or whatever. Um, but I must confess, there was no great meaning in my, like, kind of abrupt response to her, right? Um, this morning, as we, we look at our text, we see Jesus respond to this hurting man, and it seems almost like a grunt. It seems awfully abrupt, verse 48. 
Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Sounds not very kind. But unlike my not-so-probably-kind words to my wife back then, before she was my wife, these words that we hear from Jesus, that they sound abrupt to us, they sound heartless. If we can succeed this morning, we're going to see that these aren't heartless words at all. These are actually words that express Jesus' deep, deep love for this man. Is he going to heal his son? Yes, absolutely. But he wants so much more for this father. He wants so much more for the Galileans. He wants so much more for you and I. And because of that, that Jesus responds to this father in the way that he does. Well, we need to get there first, of course. And to do that, we need to start at the beginning of our story. Verse 43, after two days, he departed, from Gal- he departed for Galilee. He is, he, this is his Samaritan ministry. We've heard it the last two weeks. It's been a great success. And now he's going into his homeland, his home country of Galilee, after those couple of days. And here John gives us a parenthetical remark in the ESV there. It's in parentheses for us to help us to see that in verse 44. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. Those may sound like familiar words to you. We, we see them in Matthew and Luke as well from Jesus' own mouth. And they take place at a time where his homeland there in Nazareth and Galilee hasn't received him well. And so what does he do? He departs. Our story this morning, though, is very different because Jesus is going into Galilee. So what, what do we do with this? And not to mention... Um, we'll read in the next verse that the people of Galilee actually welcome him. So what does it mean then that a prophet is not welcomed in his home, hometown, is not honored there? What is this hometown we need to ask first? I think we learn it all the way back in the prologue and, and actually in John's gospel. So often we, we get pulled back to the prologue because it, like, he, he tells us basically everything that he's going to tell us in the gospel almost in those first few verses. Verse 11, he says this, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. This, this hometown is Galilee. Okay, this is home country where, where he's from, there in Nazareth. And in fact, in God, John's gospel, I think we might even could expand it beyond Galilee. It probably includes Judea as well. We see Jerusalem even mentioned um, in verse 45. It's really probably to all of his people. All the Jewish people were wanting to see a contrast here to the way he was welcomed in Samaria, to the way that we're going to now see him welcomed in Galilee. Now, of course, this leads us to a problem because it says that he's not honored in his hometown or homeland or home country. But we read verse 45. When he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. What's going on here? I think we might should sense a little bit of irony in John's words. Why is it that Jesus is welcomed? He's welcomed because he's a doer of signs. That's why. You might remember back from earlier in the Gospel of John, back in, in chapter 2, when he was down in Jerusalem, the very period that's being talked about here, we, we read back in chapter 2, in verse 23, we read that whenever he was in Jerusalem in the Passover, he, he did many signs. And what did they do? They believed in him. 
when they saw the signs, right? But what did Jesus do? What was his response? Do we remember from back then? But Jesus, on his part, he didn't entrust them to himself. Why not? Because what was it that they were believing in? They were just, they were just there for the show, if you will. The, the, those Jews that got so excited there in Jerusalem, it was, they got all excited because of these wonderful signs that he was doing, the, the, the miracles. They were there for the benefits of Jesus' ministry. But they weren't there for Jesus. They weren't getting excited about his ministry because they thought the Messiah is here. They were excited about it because of the things that he was doing. Now we can contrast with the, that with the Samaritans, right? Just even as we saw last week in verse 42, what, what did they say to the woman? It's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. They've heard it from Jesus themselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. I think we're meant here this morning as we go into this passage to see a bit of a contrast. Last week, we, we saw the Samaritans, the, the, one who's, the ones who you wouldn't think would have faith in the Messiah, have faith in the Messiah. And here we have the Jewish people, the ones who you think would embrace him as the Messiah. They don't. They don't have faith. They just have faith in the signs and the things around him. They're excited about the things around him, but they aren't excited about Jesus. We need to understand there's a, there's a big difference between these two things. There's a big difference between faith in Jesus and just being enamored with all the benefits that come from him. Just being enamored with the signs that, that come out of it. And we see a, a theme that kind of seems to reoccur in the, the, the Gospel of John that the people who should get it who should understand who he is, who should put the pieces together, they don't. And they totally miss who it is right there in front of them. They totally miss him. And also, let's not miss the beauty of what Jesus is doing here in our passage. He does the opposite of what you and I would do, I think. Where is it that he's going? He intentionally takes the difficult path he goes into Galilee knowing what? That they're not going to honor him. That they're just going to be there for the signs. There might be some fervor stirred up because of that, but they aren't going to embrace him necessarily and believe in him. He's not going to receive that honor that is rightfully due him. But isn't this what Jesus does? Throughout his ministry, and we're going to see it throughout the Gospel of John, he takes the difficult path a path that's ultimately going to lead him right to the cross. So Jesus here in our passage, he walks right into a region that he knows isn't going to be necessarily excited about him. They may be excited about the stuff he can bring, but not excited about him. I'm sure we all have those moments that are kind of like ingrained into our brain, those moments from our life. One of those, um, I was in ninth grade, it was the end of the school year, my grandparents got in a terrible car accident. I remember just that you can have that vision of like a sitting in the, in the waiting room that night and she was going into surgery and didn't know if she'd make it out. 
ingrained in my mind. That, that next morning, or that next day, because I think I had to go to school the next day if I remember right, but I remember, I have a memory of me being out in my backyard, and I remember just praying. My grandma, one of my favorite people in the world, was, seemed like unlikely that she would make it. And I remember praying, God, God, if you'll just save her, I'll do whatever you want. And I was willing to do whatever. I was trying to make a deal with God. Now, I hadn't been that close to him recently, but, but I knew he was the only one who could fix the situation. And I went running to him, and, but if I'm honest, I just went there for what he could give me. I didn't go to him for him. Now, I can thank God that he worked even through that, right? And that actually used the follow-up of that summer to actually grow and mature me in incredible ways, but I was just going to him in desperation. Somewhat of a similar way we see this father this morning going desperately to Jesus. The last gasp, verse 46. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine, and at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. This official, he's, he's a royal official, probably an officer in Herod's court. Okay, This would be a guy, no doubt he would have great power. He's a pretty important guy, right? But he has no ability to fix this situation. He has no ability. No, no doubt, whatever doctors, whatever he had, all of those things had been, been put to full effect but it come of nothing. This is a last gasp effort. He's helpless in the situation. And so what does he do? He comes to Jesus. Now, let me also say this. We, we don't know in this passage whether this official, whether he's a Jew or a Gentile. The passage just doesn't tell us. Which is actually kind of fitting because this passage is speaking more of the place into which Jesus is going and how this place receives him, how his homeland receives him, okay? So whether this guy is, is a Jew or not isn't necessarily the point, but that when he goes into his home, homeland, he's not received. And so verse 47, when this, this man heard that Jesus had come to Judea, to Galilee, he went to him. This would have been a, a 20-ish mile journey. This wouldn't have been a small thing, and most of it would have been uphill. It would be like walking out the front door and just walking all the way to downtown Wilmington from here and doing it all uphill. And he goes, and he, he does it because he's desperate. He's desperate. He, he doesn't know what else, and so he, 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 he asked him. He asked Jesus to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Why does he come to Jesus? He doesn't come to Jesus because Jesus is the Messiah. He comes to Jesus because word is out about Jesus. Word is out about all that he had done back in Jerusalem. We read that in verse 45, right? And at this point, this official, he's desperate. He's desperate for his son. He'll, he'll, he'll do anything. He has no real regard for who Jesus is. But he comes to him, a long journey, last gasp effort. And here's where we need to be reminded that the, the father's motivations weren't in the right place in a sense, right? He's just going to, to Jesus to, for the sign. He's not going to Jesus for Jesus. 
But let's not miss, he does go to the right person. He does go to the right person. He takes his trouble to the right person. He takes the trouble to Jesus, just like I did with my grandma so many years ago. I, I might not should have approached God in the way that I did, but I was certainly going to the right person when I did. And he was so gracious and kind in the way that he responded to me. And in fact, using that to grow and to mature me in my walk with him. Now, that doesn't mean that's the way we should approach God, though. We, we, we shouldn't approach him as Santa Claus in the sky, right? Who we can just go to when we need what we need and when we want what we want. We need to learn to go as Jesus went to the Father. And what did he say? Not my will, but your will be done. That's the approach, the way in which we should approach him. The Father doesn't approach him in the right way. And how does Jesus respond? We already read it, right? Verse 48, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now, maybe you're already putting pieces together and you're beginning to maybe see or understand why these words aren't as harsh as they seem at first. There's actually a footnote. If you have the ESV Bible in front of you, you might notice a footnote for this verse, and it says this, the Greek for you is plural twice in this verse. Okay, and that's important, and this is why, as I've told you before, it might be good if we had a Southern Standard Version, and it would read something like this, unless y'all see signs and wonders, y'all will not believe. This isn't an address just to the Father, it's an address to all the people, it's to the people of his homeland, of his hometown, his home country, and this Father is the representative of them in a way representative of all who are coming to him but not giving him the appropriate honor that is rightfully his. Of all who are just coming to them, him just interested in the signs and the wonders. And maybe here we see a little piece of how an obsession with those signs and wonders can be dangerous. I think we hear a bit of that in Jesus's words here. But we need to understand, Jesus here is diagnosing something very important. The son of this official is sick. And it doesn't mean that Jesus isn't concerned at all with the son. But Jesus has a far greater concern, a concern of a far greater sickness that he's dealing with as he goes into Galilee. And that's the sickness of unbelief. I love the way that the Dutch theologian Herman Ritterboss puts it. He says this. He says, Jesus did not only want to give the son back to his father. He wanted to give himself. You hear that? He didn't just want to give back the son. He wanted to give himself. You see, Jesus' response here, it's not unkind like I was, if it happened, unkind to my wife many years ago. This, these words, they, they come from a place of deep, deep love. It's actually a very gracious response to the Father and, and to the people there, a gracious response to a people who are coming to him with a very faulty faith. A very faulty faith. And I think too often we come to God 
And I don't know, every, everybody in here in this room, we, we're, we're all in different places, but so often we come to God and we, we, we come with a faulty faith, don't we? So often our greatest concerns aren't where they should be. You can just even think of this example. Here's a father, and he's, he's coming. He's, he's de- desperately concerned for his child, but what is he concerned for? He's concerned that his child be happy and healthy. How often as parents, or, or, or how often as we think about our loved ones, is that our primary concern? And we'd be perfectly happy if they were just happy and healthy. You know what I mean? Do you understand what I'm saying? That, that our concern tends to, can become so much for this life that we forget the concern for the life to come. And we put and we invest all of our efforts in things that are going to rust and mold and, and, and decay. Now, does this mean that it's inappropriate for the Father in this case, to come and, if you will, pray to Jesus, ask Jesus, will you? No, no there, there's nothing wrong with the approach that, in the sense of there, there's nothing wrong with that prayer for healing. The problem is what? The problem is when that's our number one concern. When that's really the number one thing that we want, that our heart has set its mind on. It's when we misplace the true object of faith. When, when our faith is misplaced and it's put on this thing, whatever this thing is, that thing could be a person, the person's health, the person's whatever. It could be on something taking place in your life, that thing that you need, that job, that whatever. And we actually put our faith in that object. And whether or not we get that object We put our faith in in what Jesus can bring us instead of what? Instead of putting our faith in Jesus. There's a big distinction there. And I think we we get mixed up by by it so easily. And we can begin to buy that putting our faith in the benefits that Jesus brings us which there are many, and they're great, and they're things to be celebrated. But we can latch our faith onto those things. And in doing so, we can very easily miss Jesus. And our faith can be very easily rocked when we don't get that object, when we don't get that thing, when that person isn't made well. And suddenly our whole earth is shaken. Because we put our faith in the wrong thing. Putting our faith in what he can give us instead of in him. I love the way one commentator puts it. He says this. Let us worship God, not for the wonders he can perform, but for the wonder that he is. A God who is worthy of worship even when there is no sign. And even when our requests go unanswered. Even still, he is to us our God, the true sign and the true wonder. You understand the distinction. I hope you do. How is your faith? What is the object of your faith? Is it centered on what Jesus can bring you? 
Is it centered on just the things of this earth that are so easily decaying and will so easily fall away? Or is your faith seated in Jesus Christ himself? The Lamb of God, who as John the Baptist told us, takes away the sins of the world. Quite a few years ago, me and two friends went on a camping, rafting, hiking trip. Night before we left, I was just in the theaters, we watched The Blair Witch Project. Not a movie I recommend to anybody, and not one that I recommend before you go on a camping trip and stuff. We get up early next morning, we drive to North Georgia. That night, we, we, we camp out in the middle of nowhere, nobody anywhere around, on the Chattooga River, which the Chattooga River, that's from the movie Deliverance, another movie I don't recommend that you see. Now, I was brave. But my friends, after seeing that and thinking through where we are, you know, they, they start you know, panicking, of course. Anyway, that, that kind of set the stage for our trip. Next day, we went rafting on the Chattooga. A few days later, we were in North Carolina hiking in one of the wilderness areas there on a, on a long and pretty relatively difficult um, day hike. And this was in a wilderness area. And sometimes when you hike in wilderness areas, the, the, the trails aren't always marked very well. And they're not always heavily traveled. So sometimes you're like, I think that's the trail. And so anyways, at some point in that afternoon, as we had been hiking all day, we, we, we were hiking on what we thought was the trail. And we kept hiking on what we thought was the trail. Yeah, that's the trail. And we keep hiking down it. And then eventually at some point, after probably at least an hour or so of that, we look in front of us and there's absolutely no trail. And we turn around and we look behind us and there's absolutely no trail. And all of this, of course, with the movies and all that kind of fun stuff. That... Anyway, um, so probably for at least an hour or more, we're like trying to backtrack, trying to figure out a way. We, we can't find the trail anywhere. Around the middle of this wilderness area. And, you know, we're looking at the map, trying to figure out where we might be, where the trail might be. We're going all over the place, all through the... The brush and everything, we can't find anything. And finally, what do I do? Finally, I pull out the compass. You know, should have done it a little earlier instead of spending an hour and a half or whatever trouncing through everything. But I pull out the compass and I say, guys, look at the map. We know in, in general we're like here, you know, you know, huge area, but we know generally where we're at. And I say, look, if we just go in this direction, if we just follow the compass, now it may be a hard hike or whatever, but eventually, we're going to have to walk across the trail. And even if we miss the trail when we walk across it, we're going to eventually get to the road, right? And so we start following it. Now, it's a difficult trail, you know, because this is like going just straight down the side of a mountain, then straight back up and, and through brush and everything, like pulling on stuff, trying to barely get up there. But we trust that the compass is going to lead us there. We decide we're going to have faith in the compass if you will, and of course it did lead us, and I eventually did get out, obviously. Um, what Jesus, I think, wants us to see here this morning, what John wants us to see, is how this, this, um, this inadequate faith, this faulty faith, how this faulty faith turns into, for this 
Father. Real and genuine faith and trust in Him, kind of like we were trusting that compass in a way. Now, Jesus warns the Father and those around Him, right? We read that in verse 48. But the official, He doesn't give up. Verse 49, Sir! Literally, Lord! Okay, what is He saying here? Here's an official of Herod's court, and what is He saying about Jesus? I'm your inferior. You're my, my, my superior. I may have great power in this world, but he is humbling himself before this carpenter from Nazareth. Lord, come down before my child dies. The one who has great power, completely humbled in this moment, in his concern for his son. His last-ditch effort. And Jesus, in His great kindness, even though the man's motives may not have all been in the right place yet, He says, go. Your son will live. Or your son lives. He commands him, go. And this is where we see that something has transpired. Something deep is going on here. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went on his way. The man here demonstrates faith and trust. Faith and trust in what? Jesus' word. He quickly relinquishes that request that Jesus come with him. Jesus says, your son will live, and he just goes. The man responds without what? Without any physical sign. With any manifestation before him, he has nothing to to cling to in the physical world. He's not able to see it. He's not able to touch it. He just trusts Jesus. Not in the sign, not in the wonder, but he trusts in the person, Jesus Christ, solely based on his word. This is the kind of faith that we see in Hebrews 11, right? But now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Isn't it interesting? Maybe it's telling for us. We usually, we want things to be in the opposite order. But the man believes first. Then his faith is verified. You understand that order? I think that's the order that the author of Hebrews is talking about here, right? It's faith not in the proof. Oh, we got everything proof. No. Faith. Assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. Here, I think the Father, he's already, he's beginning to get it. He's beginning, I think, to put things together. He's beginning to understand who Jesus is and he trusts Jesus' powerfulness. He trusts the truthfulness of Jesus' word. Now, no doubt, it's not fully grown. He's, he's not suddenly like this mature believer. But he's begun to have faith in Christ. And Jesus wants for him so much more, so much more than just having faith that he can heal his son. He wants, as we see this theme in John, he, he wants the Father to have true life. True life. Life greater than, than just getting his son back. He wants him to have 
full and complete life. So we read in verse 51, as he was going down, his servants met him and, and told him that his son was recovering. As soon as he hears these words, it's like the, the gears start running in his head. And he asked them the hour that he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday, the seventh hour, the fever left him. When? The seventh hour. He knows exactly what's going on here. It's at that moment the father immediately knew, verse 53, the father knew that was the hour when Jesus has said, your son will live. That would be wonderful if our story ended there. And oh, Jesus did another miracle and there was a father who trusted that Jesus could do a miracle. That would just be a wonder in the signs. That's not how things end, is it? And he himself believed in his whole household. What began as a quest to just have his son healed and turned into faith that merely at Jesus' words, he could heal. What does it do? It turns into a full-orbed faith. Not in the object of healing. Not in the object of getting his son back. But in Jesus Christ himself, the Father, he finally gets it. And when he gets it, what can he not help but do? But share it with his family. And it's not just he that believes, but his whole family. His life is totally transformed by the only one. The one who can bring and gives to us true life. And so our passage ends in verse 54. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Second sign, the first sign, of course, at the wedding at Cana. Here we have what John's telling us is the second sign. And at the end of the gospel, we've looked at this previously, but, but what are the purpose? What does John tell us the purpose of these signs are? These are written so that you might believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That by believing you might, what? Have life in his name. That's what takes place in the life of this royal official. And in the life of his family. They begin to not just trust him to to be some wild miracle worker, but they, they, they find him to be the object of their faith. That life is not found outside of him but found in Him. That, we, that when we're united to Him, we find our joy there. Not in the stuff that this world has to offer. Not in the things in this world that we constantly attach our hopes and our dreams to. Because those things will fade away, they'll fall away, they'll tarnish, they'll die. Our loved ones included. But he never does. Nor does the life that we're given in him. So John's setting here, I think, a little bit of pattern as we're thinking through Jesus' life. If you remember in the story of the Samaritans, there's not some great miracle performed there. We already read it. They, 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 they believe Jesus ultimately based on his word. They trust him. And now this father 
in our story. Now this father in our story, he, base, he, he ends up believing based on Jesus' word. And so let's not miss it as we look at this story, as we, as we continue to look at other stories, as we continue to look at the other signs in, in the Gospel of John. Sometimes our tendency can be to get excited about the sign. But ultimately, it shouldn't be the sign that excites us. But the one who, the doer of the sign should be the one ultimately who excites us. We, we, we shouldn't be left in awe of the miracle of Jesus here bringing the Son from the verge of death. We should be left in awe instead of Jesus himself. This Jesus who we encounter in this story, this Jesus who wants this Father, and he wants his hometown, his homeland, his home country. He wants them to be able to have true life. And that true life is only found through true faith in Him. And He, Jesus Christ, and not these things that we want, become the prize. As the Apostle Paul says in in Philippians, you know, he's not in a great place. He's almost at the end of his ministry. He's imprisoned, and he says this, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. In Christ. Where is it found? What is your faith in this morning? What is the object of your faith? Is it things in this world? Things that will decay? Is your faith this morning just in God's stuff that you think he can give you? The stuff Jesus can bring you? Wonderful things, might I add. I'm not, I'm not discounting the wonderful things that Jesus brings us. Please don't hear me say that. But is our faith in those things? Or is it in Christ? The Savior of our souls? What is your faith in? We all have faith in something. We're all trusting in something. It's the way we were made. It's the way we're created. It's the way we live every day. What is your faith in? Is it ultimately found in the person, Jesus Christ? I pray it is. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we... Thank you for your word. We thank you for our Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for his work on our behalf. We thank you for the testimony that we have before us in your word about our Savior. And we ask this day, would you help us to believe, to trust you, to cling to you and to you alone that our faith would find its ultimate object in the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. 
So, Father, I think I pray this on behalf of many here this morning and certainly on behalf of myself. Oh, we believe. But would you help our unbelief? And for those here who don't know you, who haven't put their faith in you, might you be, O oh, kind, through the work of your Spirit, to convict them of the truth of the gospel of our Savior Jesus Christ. And that he would be ultimately the seat of their, the object of their faith, as we pray it is the object of ours. We pray this all in the matchless name of our Savior, Jesus Christ.